Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. This week, Sam Bankman fried a 30-year-old worth an estimated $16 billion, was arrested on allegations of fraud from his time as CEO of FTX, once one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world. Is just one of the latest in a series of recent scandals in the world of digital currency. But how did it happen? And will it have any effect on the conventional financial economy? Emily Stewart of Vox and Laura Shin of the Unchained Podcast stop by to help us tackle the fallout next. But first, the news from NPR. To Detroit today. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. It seems like we have come a long way since Matt Damon uttered those famous four words in the Super Bowl, where he, along with celebrities, celebrities like Larry David, who you just heard from right there, said that we should not miss out, be brave, and invest in uh, cryptocurrencies. Crypto, as it's known for short, are digital currencies which are not controlled by central authorities like a government or bank. Instead, they generally rely on a blockchain and a digital ledger of transactions mined by a computer network. And sure, hearing that a currency is not controlled by central authority may make it sound risky. But then again, companies with vested interest in these currencies had enough money to buy Super Bowl ads. And surely Matt Damon would never lead me astray, right? Well, recent news may highlight now that there has been more risk, at least, than many of those advertisers wanted to let on. $152 billion of risk. That's how much the world's 15 largest cryptocurrencies lost in market value in only three days thanks to the collapse of FTX, a platform that was once the world's third largest cryptocurrency exchange, allowing customers to trade digital currencies for other forms of assets. And this week, authorities arrested the former CEO of the company, Sam Bankman-Fried, in the Bahamas, filing multiple charges against him, including securities fraud and money laundering. But why does this story have so many people captivated? Should anyone who does not own cryptocurrency care? How was the collapse of FTX even allowed to occur? And what does this mean for crypto and our broader economy moving forward? To help answer these questions and more, I'm joined by two great guests. Emily Stewart covers business and economics for Vox and recently wrote the piece FTX's implosion and Sam Bankman-Fried's arrest explained. We're also joined by Laura Shin, who is a former senior editor at Forbes and is now an independent writer covering cryptocurrency. Well, Laura, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. And before we get into the conversation, I do have a brief clip that I want to play for us to lead into it. Just like you and me, as they peer over the edge, they calm their minds and steal their nerves with four simple words that have been whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the brave. 
What does Matt Damon say on that Bitcoin commercial? Fortune favors the brave. My dad said he listened to Matt Damon and lost all his money. Yes, everyone did, but they were brave in doing so. How much money has been lost by this most recent event that's happened courtesy of uh, the FTX collapse? What specifically happened, and can you explain that to our listeners? Which one of us? Well, I would like Laura to start there, and we'll get back to you with that, Emily. Yeah, so the value of crypto assets is fluctuating constantly. And so the numbers that are being tossed around um, are probably like minimum $8 billion. But again, because of the fluctuating price, it's kind of hard to pin an actual number. You would have to pin it to a certain point in time. There have been other reports um, of Sam telling reporters or staff um, minimum $10 billion. Uh, so yeah, there it's it's not 100% clear. However, um, the main point is it's a massive amount of money. And we're going to get into how that fits in the broader context of our financial system. But uh, Emily, now that I do have you on the line, I did want to start with you in terms of just explaining for someone who's not so familiar to cryptocurrencies exactly what occurred with this FTX situation uh, and why it's so important to the uh, broader digital currency market. Sure. So it's kind of a long story, but Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX had really emerged over the past couple of years as the safe face of crypto, right? Um, even if you don't have any money in crypto, and if you're in the U.S., you probably uh, weren't really using FTX, um, you've seen the ads, you've seen this guy around, you've heard of maybe Crypto Bahamas, where Bankman-Fried appeared on stage with Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. And in November, is the operation behind FTX was sort of revealed to be a house of cards, basically, after a news report and a competitor kind of suggested maybe something was a little bit odd with one of their tokens. Um, there was a run on the bank, which is very traditional, right? People tried to pull all of their money out of FTX. Turned out FTX did not uh, have the money to give them. And pretty quickly after it um, had to declare bankruptcy, uh, Bankman Fried was replaced as CEO of, of FTX. And it's really been revealed that, that there were was some, at least allegedly, nefarious activity going on. And, and at the very least, some, some customer funds were being used in ways that the customers certainly didn't think they were being used and, and that FTX was not saying. The bank run is a tale as old as time. We've had... Uh to deal with that for a while when a bank says that they have money there for you and all of the people try to come and get their money out at the same time, but there's not enough money to provide the money that uh, the customers want back. But we always thought when it came to things like cryptocurrency, one of the benefits was the ability to move money around more quickly. But Laura, for those who aren't as familiar with cryptocurrency, can you explain exactly how uh, this form of currency works? So cryptocurrencies use um, blockchains, which are ledgers um, that you can imagine it as a history of all the transactions of the token native to that blockchain. So for instance, um, Bitcoin, uh, the word Bitcoin has two meanings. One is for Bitcoin, the network, which is the network of computers all around the globe that run the Bitcoin software and process all the Bitcoin transactions happening at any moment in time. Um, and then there's also Bitcoin, the digital asset, which is the token native to the Bitcoin blockchain. So when um, someone makes a Bitcoin payment, it's sort of like broadcasting, hey, I want to move 
this Bitcoin from my address to this other person's address. And all the transactions that are being kind of broadcast at that moment are collected. And then all the computers running the network say, okay, we're all going to write this transaction in the next batch of transactions that we're putting on this ledger, on this blockchain. And so this is how you're able to do this with this quote unquote decentralized network to not have a company or a CEO that's like, oh, we're going to maintain these servers and we're going to hire these people to make sure it all goes right. Instead, it's just software. Anybody can hook their their equipment up to it and run it and help the network process these transactions. Is there anything about the system of uh, cryptocurrency that would make it a little bit more open, uh, Laura, to a fraud that happens uh, like what's being alleged to occur with FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried? No, no. In this situation, what happened is that the company FTX is not decentralized. It's centralized, meaning that the company itself would have its own ledgers that were not public. Um, Because one thing I didn't mention earlier is that um, the vast majority of blockchains are public ledgers, meaning that anybody can look up any transaction on the ledger. Um, There's websites that are called block explorers that allow you to do these searches and to do different queries on uh, these transactions. But with something like FTX, it's just like any normal company where they're not going to be revealing all their information. And so that's what enables Sam Bankman-Fried and the other top executives at FTX and Alameda to perpetrate this fraud. And again, we're speaking with uh, two great guests right now. Emily Stewart, who covers business and economics for Vox, recently wrote the piece FTX's implosion and Sam Bankman-Fried's arrest explained, as well as Laura Shin, who you just heard from, the former senior editor at Forbes and now an independent writer covering cryptocurrency. I want to move back for you uh, to you specifically now, Emily, though, as uh, we did mention, you explained that we have these indictments coming down in the arrest of Sam Bankman-Fried. Do we know what the indictments against uh, Sam Bankman-Fried or SBF, as he's often called, uh, what those entail, what they're saying specifically he did that was illegal? We have, you know, we know what the charges are. Um, So we know that he has been charged by the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York for um, conspiracy to commit securities fraud, for wire fraud, for money laundering, and um, campaign finance violations. In terms of the exact details, that is not completely uh, clear yet. It does seem like the U.S. attorney felt like they needed to move pretty quickly on this, and they yesterday have said this investigation is ongoing. We've gotten more details from some claims made by the SEC, from the CFTC, um, but it, you know, the, the SEC said that they believe allegedly that that SBF was using um, FTX and Alameda, his, the trading firm that he owned, as sort of his personal piggy bank, right? That they were that he and other executives were spending really lavishly on real estate, that they were making venture capital investments, that it, it looks like F, um, Alameda had, was perhaps trading customer funds. So that's the sort of stuff that we are talking about. Um, it's going to be a while before we know exactly exactly what happened. Um, uh, FTX is also in bankruptcy proceedings, and you know, their new CEO testified yesterday before Congress and said, we're still trying to 
find all of the money and figure out what's going on and look for where everything is. So this is going to be a, a long haul. Allegations of uh, using your own company. You mentioned Almeida there um, in terms of uh, something that uh, that he owned and then taking money from FTX, which aren't supposed to be commingling those funds, certainly uh, would be something that would raise a lot of eyebrows. But this whole situation also has people wondering about the cryptocurrency market as a whole. Laura, uh have SBF's actions been devastating to the cryptocurrency market as it exists now? And if so, uh, why? How's that playing out? For sure. The crypto markets were already in a downturn due to the macro environment, you know, per- potentially a looming recession. And the um, FTX collapse basically was another black mark on crypto. And for everyday investors who don't follow the news in crypto super closely, just people who are, you know, maybe hearing about it very casually and don't understand all the nuances, they definitely have been spooked. And this was already in an environment where, like I said, just people were not willing to invest in risky or speculative assets. Crypto definitely falls in that bucket. So, you know, along with like tech stocks, um, crypto has definitely been, uh, has the markets have definitely deflated from a year ago. I mean, the price of Bitcoin peaked at about $69,000 a little over a year ago. And I haven't checked it in the last day or so, but like recently I saw it at about 16,000. So that just gives you an indication of how kind of um, both a global macro environment and then not only FTX, but other crypto companies have had collapses in the last roughly six months. And all of that combined together has um, definitely uh, spooked people from investing in crypto. One of the things that I think a lot of us would hear about cryptocurrency um, is the fact that it has this decentralized nature, although I heard from you a little bit, Laura, that in this case, that doesn't necessarily apply to FTX because of uh, uh, the ledger being public and things of that nature. But what I'm interested in knowing right now is to the extent that the government is really looking into this and thinking of charging um, uh, Sam Bankman freed for his actions uh, with FTX. Uh, Emily, do you know what basis or what laws do they have oversight and the ability in order to uh, actually prosecute him with anything? What laws are they using to do this if it's not a regulated uh, uh, market? Well, I think that this is kind of a, <laughs> this is a good good point because. The crypto industry for a long time has kind of said, and Bankman Freed was leading the at least more recent charge on this. We need special regulations. We need special laws. But, but actually, what this kind of shows is that to a certain extent, they don't. Um, the new CEO of FTX said yesterday a lot of this was like old fashioned embezzlement. So, you know, there are wire fraud laws in the United States, there are securities fraud laws in the United States, there are campaign finance laws in the United States, right? So what it, it seems that what was happening was that he was making excessive donations in other people's names to campaigns. So this isn't a situation where just because you are in the Bahamas, U.S. law doesn't touch you. Um, and and this is just, you know, it, this goes to show that the CFTC also has some jurisdiction here. The SEC thinks they have some jurisdiction here because many of FTX's um, investors were you know, venture capital firms based in the United States. Um, so I do think that this kind of highlights that, you know, crypto is not immune to pre-existing laws in the United States. 
If crypto, Laura, is not immune to pre-existing laws in the United States, um, and it seems like people would like to rely on those now, if you were an investor, you'd be pretty upset that you lost so much money with the collapse of FTX just because of the CEO's operations, as it's alleged. Why do crypto proponents believe that it's superior to fiat currency? And again, this question's to you, Laura. Yeah, and I'll answer that in a moment, but I I did just want to clarify, like, you know, for the earlier question, um, fraud is fraud. So it doesn't matter if you're doing it with crypto or anything else. So that's why it it doesn't matter whether or not crypto regulation has been clarified. It's like, you know, the terms of service on FTX say that if you have crypto assets there, then they're your assets. FTX cannot use them for some other purpose unless you're giving some consent. And because the company did neither, it neither asked uh, for permission. um, And then not only that, but after it was using the customer funds in a way that went against its own terms of service, it frankly was lying about the fact that it was doing that. That's just simple fraud. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact that it was crypto assets on the exchange. So that's why it doesn't really matter that much about what the regulatory clarity is around crypto assets, because, you know, fraud is fraud. And whether you're doing it with gold or whether you're doing it with stocks or whether you're doing with crypto, um, you know, there are laws around that. And and that's why, uh, you know, the regulatory clarity around crypto isn't super germane here. Um, but in terms very, of, very, very quickly oh. on that point. No, I appreciate that. That would be a contractual obligation. I would expect that would be something that uh, uh, the individuals who invested would take up with the uh, company itself, FTX, as well as Sam Bankman Fried. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, to the extent that the Securities Exchange and Commission would be concerned uh, specifically with uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, I was just wondering or trying to make sure if they had oversight over that uh, contractual obligation as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, so well, this goes back to um, the fact that there isn't regulatory clarity. Right. The SEC and the CFTC have been in a bit of a jurisdictional battle over the crypto industry. The SEC would say that the vast majority of crypto tokens, except for Bitcoin, are securities. The CFTC says that um, they believe that they should be the default regulator, that um, any, and, and this is actually similar to um, traditional financial markets where just um, the the CFTC has a kind of many more assets under uh, its purview because um, securities are really just a small subset of all of all assets. So um, and there are a number of bills that have been introduced in Congress. I think I, for sure, at least the majority of them, if not all of them, propose that the CFTC be the default regulator. Um, but you know it's been hard to get these bills passed. So now that there's probably some more momentum to get something done, I guess we'll you know have an answer maybe about who the default right. regulator should be. But yeah, at the moment the two agencies are in a turf war. That's right. The Commodities Future and Trade Commission (CFTC) as well as the SEC Securities and Exchange Commission. But I present the question back to you, Laura, about the. Uh, perceived superiority of crypto to fiat currency. What do proponents say? Why do they believe that it's superior? So um, you typically find that people who didn't grow up in the U.S. are the ones who um, kind of believe in crypto more or kind of grasp the potential of it more easily. So for instance, on my podcast, I've had um, Wences Casares, who is a serial entrepreneur, very successful from Argentina. And he told a story that, um, 
you know, it's just about how his family lost all their savings and wealth three times over due to hyperinflation in Argentina. Mm. And so, you know, he tells a story about being taken from school with his sister and his mother had her paycheck in um, cash in plastic bags and they ran to the grocery store and this was before barcodes. And so, you know, someone in the grocery store was running through the aisles and putting and using and putting new stickers of higher prices on all the food. So their job was to run ahead of that person and grab the food before it got the new price. And then every time they would, um, you know, go to the cashier, if there was any money left over, her mother, his mother was sending them back to get more food. And his sister said, why not save the money and, you know, come back when we need the food? And his mother said, because it will be less worth tomorrow, so, or worth less tomorrow. So, you know, things like that just really helped him see, especially for Bitcoin, which, you know, um, the primary selling point to a lot of these people was that it had a cap on its supply of 21 million. But then on top of that, because there was no government that was managing it, it was simply software. Anybody could check out the code for this software. It's open source software. They could see that it was programmed to, you know, not go beyond that cap, et cetera. You know, that's the kind of thing that, um, you know, people, like I said, it's, you know, I've had entrepreneurs from Afghanistan on my show who've talked about how they've used crypto. By and large, a lot of people in the U.S., you know, generally don't understand the appeal or uh, they're very skeptical, probably because obviously in the U.S. we have amazing financial services. We have, um, you know, we transact in the U.S. dollar, which is the global reserve currency. So for us, um, you know, it's sort of like, wait, why would you use this weird thing? Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't know who made it. So, yeah, so that's kind of uh, what some of the arguments would be. Very good. And again, we are speaking with uh, our two great guests right now, Laura Shin, who you just heard from. Uh, she's the host of the Unchained podcast about cryptocurrency, as well as Emily Stewart, who covers business and economics for Vox. But we also want to speak with you because you hear so much about cryptocurrency and I know that it can be a bit confusing. We have different knowledge bases on the whole thing, but it's something that certainly seems to be having an impact on our, uh, our greater financial system as more people are interested. And I want to hear from you as well. What do you make of cryptocurrency? Do you own any digital or cryptocurrencies? And did you have money invested in FTX? Does it seem like digital currency is just a big fraud or are you someone who still believes it can be useful in our economy. Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. We can work you into the conversation, as well as if you've had any questions about the latest uh, in the FTX uh, bankruptcy, as well as the arrest of their C former CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, we can try to clarify those as well. When we return, we are going to continue our conversation with our guest and get into how this situation may have an impact on the broader economy for us here in America when we return on Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station.
Thanks to Troy today on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson, joined by Laura Shin, the former senior editor at Forbes and now an independent writer covering cryptocurrency, as well as Emily Stewart, who covers business and economics for Vox and recently wrote a piece about FTX's implosion and the arrest of Sam Bankman-Fried. And speaking of that, before we get to calls, I want to first say that we've got a tweet from Shimmy on Twitter who says, it's funny that every day people heard about crypto and NFTs and were like, it sounds stupid, probably won't work out. And stock gurus were all like, it's the future. Get it on, get it, get in on it now. Yet here we are. And uh, that's kind of one of the places I want to go with you, Emily. Is there any, has this had any effect on our broader financial uh, uh, landscape, conventional landscape? And are there any concerns that it would have an impact on that? The answer so far is really no. Um, you know, heading into this, I'd spoken with one regulatory expert on this who kind of said before the FTX stuff happened, what we don't know is if there is a real bust here. Is this like the dot-com bubble or is this more like 2008 where it infects the broader financial system and, and economy? Uh, for now, it, it doesn't look like it, it really affects the broader financial system. I don't have any money in cryptocurrency. Everything's fine. Um it's unclear if it will have a broader impact at least in the U.S. for now, but at least for now, it really, really seems like this has been pretty, pretty siloed in crypto and and in that space. I think we're kind of fortunate for that, considering what the housing crisis did uh, a while back, and uh, we've seen how uh, some markets can have supreme impacts on us. So it is good that this has been siloed out as we move to Ryan in West Bloomfield. Ryan, go ahead. You're up on Detroit today. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just kind of wanted to touch on, uh, underline the, the point I think um, was made earlier, but the whole SDF FTX debacle, um, that it had nothing to do with the cryptocurrency and the underlying technology. It, it's always uh, people and greed in these last few examples that have kind of failed and set back crypto a bit. But it's still so early in this technology. Blockchain isn't going anywhere. Uh, you know, all the largest companies in the world are investing billions of dollars in it. There's so many use cases for it. Uh, smart contracts on the Ethereum side, and as far as a store of value, um, I don't think gold can really compare to Bitcoin. So, I mean, we don't really back our currencies with gold anymore, Ryan. But what I'm actually trying to figure out, though, and maybe you can help me out with this, is what is a use case that crypto can satisfy that fiat currency currency currently cannot? Well, you just basically said it. We don't back our fiat with anything. So it's ba- well, it's based backed by debt, basically. And what uh, your guest said earlier about hyperinflation, you know, we've been lucky here, um, but to a smaller scale, that's happened over the last 50 years. If you just look at you know, how far a dollar can go, um, the amount of money that we continue to print, and how hard it is to to send versus um, using blockchain. Yeah. You know, I buy a house, and I still have to, in this day and age, wait three days for wires to clear 
when uh, the title company is using the same bank. It makes no sense. But what I, I wanted to, to highlight is, you know, um, the exchanges, which FTX was, yeah. when you don't hold the keys to your Bitcoin or whatever token that you buy, you technically don't own it. It's like if, you know, you wanted to buy some bars of gold, but you were too worried about, you know, storing yeah. them in a safe. You just have a certificate that says, yes, you own these three bars of gold, but even with that, they, they oversell that. And, you know, if there's a run on gold, there's not enough gold for yeah. a certificate. Uh, Ryan, I really appreciate your uh, call and these points. These are things that I hear very often when it comes up to cryptocurrency. Basically, if you lose the cryptocurrency, it's your fault for not holding on to it. Um, I don't know if the people who had their money in FTX and again with those contracts and thinking that it was safe in there would agree with that. Uh, but I present uh, Ryan's points uh, to you first, Emily. Uh, do you have any response to the things that he was bringing up in terms of uh, it not being the fault of FTX, but rather the fault of um, the people uh, underlying the technology? Go ahead. I mean, it's tricky, right? Like, it is true, right? Like, your crypto, your keys. And it is important to realize when you leave your money on an exchange, if that exchange goes under, your money can go poof, gone. Even uh, Coinbase, which is regulated here, you know, publicly traded, has said in regulatory filings, if we go bankrupt, that money can be gone. I do think it's important to note, we've also heard a ton of stories of people who had Bitcoin on a drive or whatever and lost that drive. Like, it is... It is complicated to use cryptocurrency, I think, for a lot of regular people. And so sometimes like people don't realize, A, that the exchange can go under and their money can be gone. And B, the alternative is also sometimes, at least for, you know, I'm a pretty normal financial, you know, normie financial person. I don't know if I would have like the wherewithal or at least the energy to be like, okay, how do I get my Bitcoin into like a cold wallet over here? And so that is, it's tricky. It's a risky. It's a risky area. Yeah, yeah, and you know another thing that Ryan brought up, and I present this to you, Laura. Uh, the speed of transactions. I, I was thinking about this a little earlier. Sometimes I think that's a feature, not a bug. That there's maybe a little bit of a pause to make sure there's oversight, tracking, ability for uh, regulation, and to uh, guarantee that you can get your money back. I mean, when you have it in a bank, for example, it's uh, FDIC insured. You know that if I have X amount in there, I'm going to be able to get it back out. But I present Ryan's points to you. Uh, uh, what was your response to uh, what he had to say there? Yeah, the um, so that's the speed issue is more about like centralization versus decentralization. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean by that is um, so when you can like, for instance, uh, say that there was a fraudulent charge on your credit card and get a charge back and get your money back. That's because you can go to a centralized entity and appeal to them and then they can, because you know they're working with other centralized entities, they can be like, oh, we're gonna send the money back. But crypto acts uh, basically like cash, yeah. right? It's even though it's a digital asset, it functions like cash in the sense that if you lose that money, nobody's gonna just voluntarily <laughs> give it back to you unless for whatever reason they decide to, but yeah. like, you know, for anybody who's dropped money in the street, like, you know, you're probably not going to get that back. Right. And so, um, what, you know, like the ability to not have chargebacks doesn't necessarily have to do with speed. It's the fact that there's no company of Bitcoin that you can appeal to to say, hey, can you send that back? Yes, if your Bitcoin is on Coinbase, right. then potentially. But the thing is that Coinbase, 
because again, the assets are like cash. And um, if it's like a true thief that has stolen the money out of your account, like if they hacked your password or whatever, then Coinbase is just going to be in the hole if they decide to send some money back to you and reimburse you for those losses. And so that's why they don't do that. It's like if it's on you to keep your Coinbase password secure. So um, yeah, and then just one other point I wanted to make was um, when Ryan was talking about how um, you know, this this is about fraud and it doesn't matter which asset. I mean, you know, the I, the notion that what happened with FTX has any bearing on, you know, the promise of crypto or whatever is sort of like saying, oh, because of Bernie Madoff, you know, you shouldn't invest in stocks or stocks are dangerous. Like it, it's it's just kind of a separate issue. It's not really related. Right. So, um, or, or, you know, or something like with Theranos, like, oh, you shouldn't go get blood work done. So, you know, it's just, they're separate issues. Certainly. As uh, again, we are speaking with you, moving to your calls and moving now to Phyllis in Warren. Phyllis, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Yes. Good morning. Um, I, I guess I have to just plead ignorance. I have tried and tried and tried to understand what is Bitcoin? Mm. What do I do? I have, let's say, $2,500 in the bank in a savings account. I'm earning pennies in interest on it and everything. Can I buy a Bitcoin? And what is it going to be worth to me when... I decide I need that $2,500 back. I can understand if I buy a stock for 100 and it goes down to 50 that I've lost $50. But I do not absolutely understand, comprehend, or picture a Bitcoin. I only know massive, massive, massive numbers of computers are set up to run Bitcoins. But that's all I know about it. And I do not know how I, as an average person, could make money at it, or is it just something that has to be relegated to more important persons? Phyllis, I, first of all, knowing that a lot of computers are involved, I think you're doing better than a lot there. So good job. But yes, maybe we could have just a little bit of a primer on Bitcoin. I present that question uh, to you, Laura, as I believe you would be very well equipped to answer it. Yeah, so... Earlier, Phyllis, when you said that if you own a stock at or you buy a stock at $100 and then it goes to 50, you understand you have losses. Well, that's only if you were to sell the stock at that lower price of $50, right? You have paper losses, but you don't, quote unquote, realize those losses until you actually sell the stock. And it's the same with Bitcoin. So, um, you know, the price is fluctuating according to supply and demand, just like any other asset. And, you know, there's different markets around the world that sell Bitcoin. Um, But the key difference between Bitcoin versus a stock is that a stock is tied to a company. And with that company, you can identify a board of directors, a C-suite, you know, different executives. You can see maybe if they're a publicly traded. Well, yeah, obviously, if it's a stock, it's a publicly traded company. You can see like quarterly financials. So Bitcoin is more like gold where... Um, it it's not controlled by any company with identifiable people. You know, they're not like hiring people and paying salaries to maintain Bitcoin. Bitcoin instead has incentives built into the coin that just because of those incentives, people want to, for instance, add security to the network. And one very simple example is the Bitcoin software 
um, every 10 minutes on average is releasing or minting new coins. And these people have um, have an opportunity to enter a competition in which they could actually win those new Bitcoins. And so a lot of people hook their computer up to the Bitcoin network thinking, hey, you know, when I do this, every 10 minutes, I'm going to have this opportunity to potentially win those new coins. Now, see, here's the interesting and sort of sneaky cool thing is that that's this incentive that actually increases the security of the Bitcoin network because the more computer power you have on the Bitcoin network, the harder it is to take it down, to uh, you know put counterfeit transactions on it. And so because so many people have been incentivized over the years, especially with the Bitcoin price rising, to try to win those coins, the Bitcoin network has just gotten more and more and more and more and more computer power on it, which just makes it so much more expensive for anybody who's either trying to take it down or trying to put, you know, counterfeit transactions on it or whatever it might be. So, um, so yeah, so it's not a centralized company that's hiring people saying, keep this network secure. It's that the coin has incentives built into it that just inspire people to do those things. Yeah, Bitcoin, a little bit complex there, uh, but Phyllis, I think that was a very good question, and it actually uh, leads me to wonder and present to you, Emily, one of the things that came up uh, in that response uh, was how, uh, you know, with stocks, they're tied to uh, a bank versus and has a board of directors and things of that nature. Uh, I want to know from you, when it came to this situation with FTX, there's, it's a company. It's a business. It should have had a board of directors. It should have had an oversight. Uh, what failed there to allow the collapse of FTX? Well, that's a good question. I mean, why it didn't have a board, I don't know. Uh, they also did not have a CFO. Um, I mean, at least with FTX specifically, it just it feels like a lot of people were asleep at the wheel. Um, Benjamin Fried was talking a very big game. He said, we have excellent risk management. Uh, we're doing great work here. And I think just a lot of a lot of people really weren't looking. Like, it's a question that I've been asking myself the last couple of days, which is just, how did he raise all of this venture capital money? Yeah. Um, as a journalist, you know, I remember talking to him in 2021 and asking, well, wait, but you have an exchange and you have a trading firm and is that okay? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, well, like somebody else would probably figure out if that was bad. So I think this is kind of like a broader moment and maybe Laura would disagree with me to at least ask like, as in the media, like, wait a minute, how did this happen? Because all of a sudden FTX was everywhere. And, and I think a lot of us are asking ourselves what, what happened here? Because as you say, there was no board at all. There was no CFO. It, just, you know, a handful of people, it looks like, in the Bahamas. And and when we continue here on Detroit Today, we're going to get to some more calls. John in East Point, as well as Todd in Lake Orion, you both will be up next. Thanks to you and Phyllis for joining the show. That also means we have open lines, 313-577-1019, to get in on the conversation about crypto and FTX when we return on Detroit Today. Today 
on 101.9 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson, talking about one of the hot topics happening right now in the world of finance, specifically digital currencies, the collapse of FTX and the arrest of its former CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, which brings us to Todd in Lake Orion. Todd, you're next on Detroit Today. Hey, thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, gain knowledge, because this is an area of which I have next to none. But I have two questions, actually. First and foremost, what were Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried's qualifications for this job? I, I've heard that his parents were both Stanford business law professors. I don't doubt that he's very intelligent, and you may inform me, but let's be honest. And, and again, I'm, I'm not equating intellectual capacity, integrity, or the ability to run a business based on one's appearance, but this looks like a kid that gets out of bed at noon every day in his pajamas <laughs> And just happens to show up. And again, you, you don't have to wear a certain tie or suit and tie to look a certain way. But I look at this guy and I go, I'm not sure I trust this kid to mow my yard. Yeah. Let's give him a big. And again, that is a generalization right. which may offend. But wh- if I were to do this, I'd say, well, what are your qualifications to run this business? I mean, you 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 don't have a headquarters. You don't have anything. I don't know that I would give anybody something looking at this guy. And secondly. I, I, as an outsider, view this whole cryptocurrency as kind of a two, a group of people that are too cool for school. The hipsters, the people that they, they just have to be cutting edge. They, they just can't do it the way everybody else does, which is fine, because sometimes the way it's being done is wrong, and it can be fixed. But it just appears as though a lot of this, and there are very successful, wealthy people doing it, that, you know, they, they just want to be they want to be the first. Right. They want to be the cool. They want to be the ones that the old ways just don't work for them. Yeah. And that's fine. But there are some value to the old ways. Right. Correct? Yeah, yeah. Todd, I, I want to get this question to Emily because, Emily, I know you got to run pretty soon, but I think that first question <laughs> is perfect for you. So I present it to you right now. His qualifications. Yeah, I mean, so he went to MIT. He worked at a trading firm called James Street Capital for a while, made money there. And then in 2017, SBF launched Alameda, uh, his trading firm, and made a lot of money off of that. And basically, from that, launched FTX. Um, his qualifications, I mean, plenty of CEOs, you know, start companies from all different walks of life. I was watching the dropout about Elizabeth Holmes last night. You know, she didn't graduate from college. Um, this is also true of plenty of successful CEOs who did not uh, do crimes. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question of how how he did this. But it's also worth noting that his kind of schlubbiness was part of his shtick, right? That he was just this guy who was really humble. He was really into philanthropy. And, and that really, you know, it was a good narrative and, and it worked. Yeah. Emily, I know you got to get out of here right now, but I want to thank you again for coming on uh, Detroit Today and joining us. Look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You as well. I present the second question to you, though, Laura, as I think it is uh, an interesting point, again, that he brings up. For people who don't understand it, it does seem somewhat like uh, cryptocurrency is a solution searching for a problem. What response do you have to his second question? Well, it goes back to, you know, some of the 
uh, answers that I mentioned earlier about how definitely people from other countries who don't, um, where those countries don't have reliable either financial systems or currencies, they kind of understand the um, the promise of crypto uh, more easily than I think Americans do. Um, you know, uh, quickly on that score, I could tell the story of one of the Afghan entrepreneurs I had on my show. She's actually kind of famous because um, she was also the one behind the girls robotics team that didn't get its visa um, initially and then finally eventually got its visa to compete at some robotics competition here. This was a few years ago. Um, but anyway, back in like 2013, she had um, a startup in Afghanistan that was kind of like a blogging platform. And many of the women, sorry, many of the bloggers on the platform were women and in Afghanistan, women either often are not allowed to have bank accounts or if they do um, manage to make money, then their male relatives will confiscate the money from them. And so they were trying to figure out how to pay these bloggers and eventually hit upon Bitcoin as a solution. And they taught them, you know, how to manage their own private keys and, you know, how to receive Bitcoin payments and et cetera, how to you know, convert the money to local currency. And there was a, a woman who was receiving money this way, who I guess was in an abusive marriage. And because she was able to, um, you know, earn these Bitcoins and not have the money taken from her, she eventually saved her money and was able to divorce her husband. So um, there's, you know, I think a lot of people who, like I said, in certain contexts, they can't understand the value of this. But one other thing that I would say is that um, a few different times I've heard you just really focus on um, the fact that kind of the most common um, word to describe this is cryptocurrency, but actually the um, more precise word I think would be crypto assets. And the reason that cryptocurrency is the most commonly used word is because Bitcoin was the first crypto asset. And that is really structured to be more like a currency. And so many people view this whole class of assets as just being currencies. But for instance, Ether, which is, um, the second most popular crypto asset and definitely um, you know, one of the most widely used is actually more like, you could think of it as more like oil or gas. And um, when I say that, you use ether to pay for computation on Ethereum, which people have often described as a decentralized computer. So I know this is maybe a bit confusing, but I'll just explain in a very simple way. Ethereum is very flexible in what it can do. You can think of it as like the app store in your phone, except that any application that's uploaded to it can run in a decentralized manner, meaning a developer can code up a little you know, piece of software and upload it to Ethereum where it can run independently and um, the developer doesn't need to do any continual maintenance or or whatever. I mean, they might they might like keep up updating it like by just um, basically creating a new software program and urging people to move over to the new one. Um, but it will basically run in perpetuity, um, you know, once it's uploaded. And you know, you can imagine like in your app store on your phone, you have you know like photo apps and you have cooking apps and you have financial apps and you have um, productivity apps and um, on Ethereum, you can have a wide variety of things. This is why, like for instance, we see NFTs on there, but we also see um, like what's called DeFi or decentralized finance, which is like decentralized exchanges or decentralized borrowing and lending. So these are obviously quite diverse and different things, right? Yeah. So just going back to Ether, when you pay for computation on Ethereum, 
like let's imagine that you just make a simple payment like i'm just going to send you one ether that's actually very low uh what would you call uh what you would call gas cost it it just doesn't take a lot of computation so maybe it's like the price of riding the subway here in new york like roughly three bucks um if instead i want to mint an nft like create this unique object that's that takes a lot more computation and so for instance that's maybe more similar to buying enough gas to be able to drive from New York to Florida or something. I'm making it up. I actually don't know, you know, comparison wise what sure. the difference would be. But I'm just trying to say that, you know, that's very different from something like Bitcoin, which is trying to be a currency. So, um, I, yeah, so I can understand that. And I appreciate that explanation. I mean, you right. You could talk about all of those other things, uh, NFTs. Uh, but I did. I I was a little bit trying to cordon off the conversation from that. But I do understand that uh, that is an impact also. And we can get into it a little bit, I guess, before we close out. But before I uh, do that, I do want to allow John and East Point an opportunity to get involved with the conversation. John, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I think it's important to address the difference in investing in crypto compared to other more traditional investments like precious metals, stocks and real estate and things. Um, of course, precious metals and real estate have their own value as tangible assets, but investing in stocks, uh, you're buying a part, part of ownership in a company that actually performs a function in our society. Uh, they may perform that function well or poorly, uh, but they do something. And unfortunately, crypto has existed for more than 10 years, and it still has no seemingly actual applicable purpose beyond, unfortunately, for me as a person not very familiar with the space, uh, black market transactions in this um, speculative profit profit uh, incentive. So uh, further, the biggest proponents of crypto can rarely, if ever, in my experience, adequately articulate uh, its future benefits. So unfortunately for me, it just seems like a pump and dump scheme yeah. where it's all about driving the hype getting the the price to go up selling at the top and waiting for it to crash back down to buy in again so right. my heart really goes out to the people who lost a lot of money uh, with ftx right john i appreciate your call and your points here on detroit today laura i know that uh, through the course of this conversation you've pushed back against that theme uh, you've had some of the anecdotal uh, information that you brought forward about uh, uh, folks in uh, the other countries that don't have as great of central regulation. But when we do bring up ideas like NFTs, I think one of the points John's bringing up is the fact that to the extent that you have a tangible asset, you know, there's something you can do with that trade. There's one of it and maybe it performs a function in the world versus an NFT. It seems as though the value is only what people say the value is in it. And then you end up with rug pulls when people, you know, use their whole followers to pump up the value of something, say it's worth this, then pull all their money out and it comes crashing back down. So uh, what would you say in response to someone like John, who's uh, putting forth those concerns? And uh, we've got about a minute left, so I'll give you this opportunity to respond. Yeah, I mean, for sure, there's so much of that in crypto. And I actually went into quite a lot of that in my book um, because for short, uh, pump and dump schemes and speculation are like a huge part of the crypto economy. Um, but, you know, it's certainly there also are real entrepreneurs that are building real things. You know, whether or not you find value of them is sort of just your own opinion. Um, but certainly they, you can definitely say they're different from things that have existed before. So at least in that regard, um, you know, they would say, well, hey, this is like a new and different thing that I'm offering here, a different product. 
I appreciate your time again, Laura Shin, for coming on. You can check out her podcast uh, anytime. It's the Unchained Podcast about cryptocurrency. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for us here on Detroit Today, produced by Sam Corey and myself. We'll tune in tomorrow when we continue our conservative series conversation with the voice of Sheikah Dalmia on 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.